Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, and today we're speaking with Emily Silov, senior lecturer in medieval Arabic literature at the University of Exeter, and a woman who knows a thing or two, and indeed probably more than almost anyone else alive today, about the magical writings of one Sirajuddin Asakaki. Emily, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. It's a delight, um, as I always. Happy to be here. Tell me about this guy, Sirajuddin Asakaki. Maybe, maybe we'll cover what the sort of general knowledge about him first, mm-hmm. and then we can inject the, the little ma- magical question mark in afterwards. Sure. So Sakaki is somebody whose name is widely recognized among people who study the Arabic language because he wrote a book called Miftah al-Ulum, which means the key to the sciences. And it's a book about grammar, rhetoric, basically about the Arabic language. And, and in a bridge in clarified form, it's still used today to study the Arabic language. And that is what people know about Sakaki. And the people who know that about him tend not to know that he was also a sorcerer. So that's what he's famous for today. He was born in 1229 um, in Khwarezm and wrote a, yeah, wrote a book about language. And that's his claim to fame. Hmm. But uh, I mean, to the, the, as, as for the magic stuff, it appears that in the last couple of years of his life, he worked as a court magician for the emperor of the Shagatai Khan, um, Mongol emperor. Mm. So he was alive during those very sort of tumultuous days of the early Mongol conquest in, in, a, in a region that was already sort of a grab bag of... Um, peoples and languages, uh, you know, struggling with one another. So that, that was kind of his, um, his cultural context. Crazy. Yeah. So he was born in, in times of relative peace and then lived through the initial Mongol conquests. Yeah, then... I mean, so he was born, um, I mean, I guess the Khwarezmian Empire was sort of sputtering out during his lifetime. And one of the contemporary biographies of him says that he attempted to influence that the battle between the one of the late Khwarezmian emperors against the Baghdadi Caliph by means of a buried magical statue, which misfired and accidentally helped the Baghdadi Caliph instead. So he was, I mean, I guess even before he worked for the Mongols as a court magician, he was already working for the Khwarezmian emperor. Or at least this is the lore about him. Or at least that's the story, yeah. I mean, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, you can say that about virtually anyone, but yeah. You do get these buried statues that have magic powers in um, in a lot of stories about Arab magicians, don't you? Like sort of the buried talisman that saves the city and or that um, cries out when the enemy approaches, all this kind of thing. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about that biography is that was written by one of his contemporaries, whereas a lot of the other biographers are a couple hundred years after he was dead. So mm. it's a little bit of the background. Hmm. Well, let's bring magic into the into the mix then. There okay. is a grimoire. What's it called? Kitab al-Shamil which means the book of the complete and the sea of the perfect or something like that, which, just to avoid confusion right off the bat, is very similar to a tabasiz, al-Kitab al-Shamil, wal al-Kamil, which means the complete sea and the perfect. Uh, I mean, the, the complete book and the perfect C. So it's just the, the, the absence of an article there right. that makes the difference. And um, 
I mean, I can talk a little more about the difference in content between those two books as well and how I think that's subtly reflected in their title. But because some people might have heard of Tabasi, but not heard of Sakaki. Well, who's Tabasi then while we're on the subject? Okay, so Tabasi was an 11th century. He was actually quite, I mean, so this is judging by Travis Zade's work on him. Travis Zade is sort of an authority in the field at Yale. And he was a, sounds like sort of like an orthodox religious type of guy, a hadith transmitter, um, a teacher at the madrasa, Sunni sort of with ascetic Sufi leanings, who wrote this book that's chock filled with what you might call black magic and summoning devils and stuff like that, which, you know, makes you question what you might think you think you know about uh how so-called orthodox religious people of the medieval world thought and, and worked. Almost everything that Sakaki's book does, Atabasi also did. And so judging by the title and the content, Sakaki was obviously deeply influenced by him. And his Akitab Ashamal, Atabasi that is, um, means the comprehensive book. And it seems like he meant to include everything in there, high and low, um, which is actually something that, that seems quite common in Arabic literature of all sorts to, to include the high and the low, the good and the evil as a picture, a full picture of the microcosm. So that, I mean, I think that's, that's one theory that Zadeh put forward about why Tabasi includes so many wild and crazy things. For Sakaki, I think the reason that it's Kitab Ashamel, the book of the complete person, is that instead of focusing on the completeness of the book, he's focusing on the perfection of the practitioner as, you know, the so-called perfect man, the insan of Camel. Mm. Um, I think that's the, the sort of difference between the two, or that's my current theory. That's interesting. It's interesting that he's riffing on a predecessor, an important yeah. predecessor in what he's doing. Yeah. And so what's in Sakaki's book? It's sort of divided up into several main chapters. The first chapter is made of the Book of the Moon and the Book of Venus, as well as type of work that you would call pseudo-Aristotelian talismanic hermetica, which is a genre designation, I think, coined by Kevin Van Gladwell. Um, the second chapter is about controlling jinn and devils. The third chapter is more, more stuff about jinn and devils, treating epilepsy, and also working with young boys with goblets. Uh, with what? Sorry? Young boys who have goblets. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. Ganymede, Ganymede type cupbearer sort of figures. And using them um, how, for divination. Well, um, sort of, but also just as a way to, it's like the, it seems like the cup is almost a mirror to the other world so that you can use them to kind of contact the djinn. I mean, mainly to contact the djinn. Of course, that's something that's, okay, I, I won't go off on it right now, but something very interesting to me from my previous work in sympathetic literature. Yeah, so chapter four is um, a binding spells for the most part, um, both causing and treating sort of medical afflictions with magic. And the, the fifth chapter is about addressing the planets, um, get, getting the power of, of each of the planets and by addressing them appropriately and acting appropriately. Right. So not talismans, uh, not so much wor working with material objects, but but actually kind of 
doing spells but, to talk to them. Well, that or last chapter. To them. That last chapter has speeches. Like for each of the planet, there's speeches. There's tablets, alwah, and talismans. Like there's the, each planet is divided into several sections, basically. So spe- speeches is one way, and yes, I think there's behaviors as well. Incense, yeah, that's right. There's incense for each particular planet. Uh, but talismans are a huge part of this book as well. Talismans and what's known as niranj, which are sort of like talismans made of various animal parts and, you know, metals and inscriptions, the appropriate astrological moments and all of that. Hmm. Oh, this so a fascinating book. Lots to ask you about. Um, it's got about everything in there. Yeah, seemingly. And seemingly that's the idea, no? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So is there a kind of encyclopedist, like universalist ideology going on here where people are trying to write the magic book that sort of comprehends the whole universe? I think so, yeah. I would think so, though, because it's been my pet theory ever since my days of being a scholar of party crashing, weirdly, because I I, I spent most of my scholarly career studying this particular party crasher named Abul Qasim, who... I read as a microcosm who encompasses both the the heavenly and the hellish and the monstrous and the beautiful all in one sort of, um, you know, grotesque person. So weirdly, I feel like this book is doing the same thing. The, the shamal person is sort of the sorcerer equivalent of the, of the microcosmic party crasher, finding some weird similarities. That's, there, but yes, that's a long way of saying yes. I think so. Now we've got. Uh, well, first of all, let's get some. Let me try to get this contextualized a little bit. Okay. How unusual is this grimoire? Would you say for its time and place? Is it just sort of maybe a extra fancy but more or less run of the mill manual, or is it? Is there yeah, special stuff about it? I don't get the impression that it particularly unusual because I think what it is is Kaki's own little I mean they call it a cash cool don't they like a sort of a little grab bag beggar bowl of everything he threw together on the subject of magic broadly defined and I know everyone has a problem with that term but just like anything you can think of that might be magic he put it in there including you know the sort of esoteric properties of certain verses of Quran and into how to draw up a contract with Satan so, wow. um, yeah, there really is a contact with Satan this one. That's amazing. Uh, with, yeah. <laughs> with Iblis? Is he called Iblis? Yeah, in this particular spell, he's called Abu Mora, like Mr. Bitter, sort of, or something like that. That's a common nickname for him. Yeah. Um, now, that's interesting. Let's, let's think about this. On the one hand, the natural magic stuff. So the astral stuff, the talismans, the um, properties of bits of dead animals, all that stuff is has been naturalized in Islam, in the Islamicate world for hundreds of years. It's not, as far as I know, not really seen by anyone as being sort of evil or even supernatural. Yeah. It's just, it's physics, right? Applied physics. Then on the other hand, you have stuff like getting jinn to do what you want. Again, jinn are a form of fauna. They're not supernatural per se. Um, They can do lots of stuff that dangerous but yeah not inherently evil not evil and also not i mean they're made of fire they're they're animals of a kind they're a kind of animal right they're They're not angels angels are like another level of being but jinns are basically a kind of animal so again dangerous and and tricky but not um 
evil, not black magic, I, I guess. But well, some it, of them are Muslims, as he, as he says. Some are Muslims, some are Jews, some are unbelievers. So, yeah. Yeah. I suppose if you're dealing with unbelieving jinn, it's just as bad as dealing with an unbelieving human. Yeah, know? I guess so. Yeah. Um, it's great that we're doing this uh, on the on the full moon of Ramadan, by the way, this uh, interview. It's perfect. <laughs> That's my choice. <laughs> but then you have some proper evil black magic stuff, right? Suddenly we're in hammer horror territory where you're going to make a deal with the devil. Or... There is some truly horrific stuff in this book. Like sometimes I'm just like, Sakaki, that is not cool when I'm reading this. But I mean, okay, so this is when I do kind of start falling back on his biography a little bit. Because if you wanted to survive as a magician for the Mongols, you probably needed to have quite a few, you know, nasty tricks up your sleeve on how to defeat your enemies and all sorts of horrific ways, because that's what, that's what would have made you valuable as a court magician to a Mongol emperor. Maybe I'm just prejudiced against the Mongols, but that's how I imagine them. Especially the I early mean, Mongols who aren't Muslim yet, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like, so I think in Horizon, there are all sorts of people running around, probably all kinds of people from various religious backgrounds. Though, I mean, that didn't explain why Tabasi had pretty much the same stuff, because he did. What Travis Day said about him was that, you know, he was he was kind of one of those Sufi master, right? So he had the power to control the jinn because he was a friend of God. And mm-hmm. that was a sign of um, holiness in a way. But s- similarly for Sakaki, all this stuff is supposed to be limited by use uh, of the masters only, you know, the, the pure, holy sort of practitioners. But I mean, to me, that's just another way to sell himself more effectively to the Mongols, just saying that, that, that he's, um, or whoever he was working for, that, right. that he has exclusive knowledge, um, that only he can exercise correctly. And it, oh, yes, it's dangerous knowledge, but... Um, he knows how to, do, how to do it, right? But he's like the the, the ustad or whatever of that yeah, it is craft. Exactly, yeah. That's interesting, right? Um, for a number of reasons. Here we have esotericism, explicit esotericism. So this stuff, which we get in magic books all the time, from the the cheapest sort of you can buy it on the marketplace in Cairo, a bit of Quranic magic, which says, this is the secret tome. And you're like, well, no, I just bought it from a bloke, like for, <laughs> you know, for like 50 pence. I don't think it can be that secret to proper works of literate, learned, incredibly involute ritual at the other end. But here, the the esoteric elite, from what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, if if I'm getting the emphasis wrong, but they're an elite of pious people. It's through their Islamic excellence that they are able to do magic really well. Like saints are the are the best magicians, basically. Yeah, I feel yeah, oh, that yeah. seems to be about right. Yeah, yeah. So that sounds about right. That is and really I'm, interesting. You know, Sakaki is not remembered as a Sufi. Like, if you just read the sort of standard biographies of him, he's remembered as um, uh, just a kind of I think a Hanafi, just mm-hmm. like a Hanafi Mu'tazili type of guy is how they characterize him, but. I haven't seen one of these grimoires yet that that isn't heavily and pretty explicitly influenced by Sufism, including quoting famous Sufis like Al-Hadidina Kamani in this case, and um, yeah, other such people. 
I mean, I, I get the impression that he will quote anybody that he thinks has authority, whether they're Sunni, Shia, pagan, Sufi, whoever. Um, and, and any of these people, it seems to me, can be the, the perfect person. So, I, I mean, I don't think that he is being very exclusionary in what sort of creed you have to adhere to to be perfect. Well, that makes sense from a kind of Islamic view of history and the history of Revelation and the history, you know. It doesn't start yeah. with Islam, right? No, that's true. But I mean, the other fun thing about this book is that he addresses. So yes, there are Muslim jinn I mentioned. There's also Christian and Jewish jinn, and he addresses them on, on their terms. So if he's talking to a Christian jinn, he will say, "I I abjure you by in the name of Jesus Christ." Or and if he's talking to a Jewish Jen, he'll you know he'll probably mention Moses and people Whoa. more you know that have more power. Oh, and Zoroastrians as well. Uh, you know, I conjure you by the light and the fire. I'll say to them, "Holy so, cow!" Yeah, he touches so people on their own terms, which is probably a good social skill. You know, living in the society that he lived in. Yeah, had all kinds of different jinn and people running around. I suppose. Yeah, we do that a lot as humans, don't we? We project our current social arrangements, whatever they may be, onto the spirit world or even onto the afterlife or onto the gods or whatever. This, you get this all the time. But this is so um, interesting to me because it kind of makes sense within Islam. In, in other words, it's not its not just some unconscious thing that he's accidentally doing, but it's really, it's like, no, that makes sense. That We know there are jinn who are believers. We know there are jinn who aren't believers. It could follow very easily that some must be Christians and some must be Jews and so on and so forth. How does one address these people politely? Well, we all know yeah. this because we live among them, you know, in in the teeming melting pot of Central Asia. We we have Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians and God knows what all, all the time. And we have polite ways of speaking to them. So you just follow that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the idea that there's Jewish and Christian and Muslim and unbelieving Jinn, I think is pretty widespread. Like, I think that even shows up in like the Arabian Nights and stuff mm. like that. I know the front says there's, you know, there's unbelieving and believing generally. Yeah. Right, but it's nice that he 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 talks to them on their own terms, but I guess it's kind of also a, a whatever works kind of theory yeah. of magic. Isn't right. So you use, you invoked the name of Jesus with these guys just because that they're going to respond to that. You haven't even, you haven't, so. yeah, stands to reason. Now you yeah. mentioned some, authorities that he's citing and you mentioned yeah. you know sufis but also pagans whatever tell us about the pagans and whatever does he is he citing hermes who's he citing yes yeah all the people you'd expect so uh the pseudo aristotelian talismanic hermetica is an entire genre that's based on the idea that aristotle taught alexander the great yep. and so there's all those sort of authorities in there. I mean, Hippocrates is in there. I remember him. What's so frustrating is the current part that I'm um, translating right now. He keeps citing this guy called a Taus Yunani, who I can't find. His Taus, like peacock. Peacock, the Greek peacock. The Greek peacock. Mm. It's like the authority for the entire Book of Venus, and I don't know who that is. But yeah, you know, all the standard sort of authorities of ancient Greece are, are in there somewhere. What about Apollonius of Tiana? <laughs> Yes, Ladinos, yeah, absolutely. As uh, as an authority on talismans. Basically, yeah. 
And all and all the Bible sort of people, you know. So Adam as being the first sort of guy who was given control of the jinn, and um, then the other prophets, like obviously Solomon, tons of Solomon, and um, Adris, Ezekiel. And what do, what roles do the angels play? Are they are they there to be bossed about by the practitioner? You use their names as appropriate, right. so. For, there are, you know, groups of angels associated with each of the planets and in throwing spells at the appropriate astrological moments when those planets are in certain places, you, you use the names of those planets' angels. There's loads and loads of angel names. Some of them are recognizable. Others are not at all. I did read in work by Matt Melvin Kushki that some of these angel names were sort of generated according to numerological considerations. So, um, hmm. but yeah, almost every spell really uses the recitation of angel names. Starting to get a better handle of what, what these spells might have looked like. Um, yeah. So this is an idea, you know, going back all the way to classical antiquity, throwing in loads of angel names, some sometimes made up ones. Um, Seemingly in the Greek magical papyri, the, the criterion wasn't so much alphanumeric as just make it sound Hebrew. Ah, so uh, yeah, like there's, yeah, they all end in E. Yeah, yeah, they all, exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, whenever I get to those at the moment in my translation, I just put brackets, angel names. And okay. That. So I'll have to go back and figure it out later. It's a whole lore to be explored on its own, huh? Especially yeah. if they're making them up based on letterist consideration, because then you'll have to actually go do some letterism and figure out what systems are being used. Maybe there's more than, oh, maybe he's God. inheriting some and making up some himself. This is fascinating. So first of all, isn't it impossible that a orthodox, see, I like how I use that word there, an orthodox mm -hmm. Sunni Muslim intellectual could be a, doing this kind of magic? Surely that's a contradiction. Um, no, it's, I mean, okay, so... This is something else that is very much a hangover from my previous research, which is basically books about parties, which, you know, are books about Muslims drinking wine and being, you know, telling naughty sexual jokes and flirting with the young, hot Christian monks and stuff like that. You know, people know that Christians aren't supposed to do certain things like maybe have sex. What are we not supposed to do? Have sex before marriage or, you know, we're supposed to honor our fathers and mothers and stuff like that. But I, I don't think that Christians do those things more or less than any other human in the world. And, but it's not only that. Uh, there's, I think there's something more going on, which is that, I mean, wine in particular is the perfect kind of symbol of um how the earthly and low mirrors the heavenly um, and exalt it, because paradise looks like a looks like a wine drinking party, doesn't it? Mm. The the young beautiful cupbearers, and that mirror of the high and low, I think, is the part of the mirror of the microcosm and the macrocosm, which is central to not only to the practice of magic, but just kind of understanding medieval cultures and worldviews and literature of all sorts, European and Islamic. And, and so participating in that fully is just being a human being, being um, a pious Muslim who drinks and flirts with Christian monks is that's being the microcosm, isn't it? That encompasses all things together. Right. 
So you have to encompass everything. I mean, yeah, I think that makes sense, doesn't it? Especially if you think about the kind of the idea of the kind of self talismanization where you take on the properties of each of the planets. I know Michael Noble talked about this in Chakradina Resi Siramakchum, which has a lot in common with Sakeki as well, actually. That he's, he says you go planet by planet. And, you know, when you're, when you're getting the power of Venus, then you, you behave almost like you're at a banquet um, and enjoy the voluptuousness of that setting. And when you're getting the power of Mars, then you behave in a warlike fashion. And it's by moving through each of those stations that you become a complete human being. Hmm. But- now, this guy is a grammarian. Is he writing the sort of works where you have, like, erudite discussions of obscure Quranic terms that don't seem to be Arabic that go on and on and on? Or is he doing a different sort of thing? In the Miftah? In the Miftah. In a way, all the standard things you'd expect to find in a book of grammar, things about verbal inflection um, and, you oh, know, and also rhetorical devices. It's just reading it when you're thinking about magic makes things look a little different. How so? So, for example, one of the first things he does is he talks about the special properties of the class of certain letters. And special properties is a word that he also uses when talking about, you know, the special properties of gemstones or plants in his book of magic. And it does seem, I mean, I don't think that he's unusual for this, but just if you think of the kind of guy he was, it it all takes on a deeper significance. Some letters can sound hard, some can sound soft, and the correct implementation of each of those types of letters will help you influence your listener. And obviously influencing the listener with powerful language is one of the tools of a sorcerer. Right. Um, he is especially interested in the power of the language of the Quran, both in his book of magic and in his book of language. That, that, that is the most powerful type of language, and only those really in the know can truly understand or begin to understand the language of the Quran. So even in the Miftah, he's setting up this sort of dichotomy between those with knowledge and those without. Right now, what I'm reading in the Miftah is this theory of similes, which is really interesting in light of the magical writings, because he's telling why certain things are connected in such a way that you can, for example, compare a rose to a cheek. What is it that connects a rose to a cheek? And he talks about the intellectual connections as well as the physical connections and how the physical connections are kind of the first level that the uneducated can grasp, but then there's also a deeper intellectual connection and he gets into that. And he's talking about their usage in poetry as metaphors, but a lot of the metaphors that are used in poetry are actually also used in magic. For example, gazelle skins are often used as the material support for love spells. And of course, gazelles are used as an image of beauty and love in Mm. love poetry. And I'm finding that a lot, that the images used as metaphors for love are used in love spells images that are used in metaphors for hate are used in hate spells and so on and it seems like in his uh, descriptions of these similes in the way that they work that he's not just describing language anymore he's describing the hidden connections that exist between things with those for eyes to see them you know does that mean he has a theory of language whether whether he makes it explicit and thinks it out in the in the sense of a modern theory of language how we tend to do these things or just an, an understanding of how language works that he isn't necessarily spelling out in this way, such that yeah. language is 
well, let's let's ask this question: Is he a nominalist? Does he think words are just signs that are arbitrary, or does he think words are somehow linked to the realities they describe? He does get into this. So this was a hotly debated topic. Um, This was a big one in the Middle Ages, especially in the Islamic world, because there you have the Quran, which is this extremely privileged bit of language that's also supposed to be, depending on your school of Islam, maybe one of Allah's attributes, maybe a pre-existent reality that comes before the creation of this dunya, like it's 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 an archetype. It, It has all these special characteristics, but it's language. Well, that was a huge point of debate, wasn't it? The createdness or uncreatedness of the chronic I guess. But um, mm. he talks about the coiner of language a lot. There. He talks about this a lot. And who is, who is the coiner? Is it God? Is it man? He actually, I, I don't think he does believe that the words themselves are, are you know, the necessarily intrinsically physically connected to the things they describe he is a little bit agnostic as to whether god or man coined them i think uh he does he goes into this quite a bit actually um though like i said he seems to think that the line the the letters themselves have uh special properties and somebody who knows how to use them would coin a good word or something that they were talking about. Um, different words are coined in different ways. For example, some are coined by common usage, but others were coined by ancient wise men. And he does seem to be very interested in ancient wise men. Uh-huh. Well, who isn't? Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think I, I think he kind of abstains from weighing in uh, as to whether God coined the words. Yeah. Himself. But at the same time, he's if there's some words that, for example, ancient wise men founded and by the way this is almost exactly the approach taken in plato's kratilus which is very interesting to to language and how in this sort of esoteric art of etymology um the 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 founders wisely made the words correspond perfectly to the things they were talking about um but not all words right yeah so yeah i guess it, it it it, it depends on how they came about. And he recognizes that some words simply come about through common usage. Um, yeah. So, But it's interesting that he, if, if whatever the theory there is, the de facto situation is some words have magic connections, let's say. All words could be deployed in the right context to great effect, you know, and that takes enormous skill. Whether you're writing poetry or a magic spell, using the right word for the right, situation is what it's all about now when you say that are you are you is that a kind of cross-textual reading of both the miftah and the grimoire i guess so yeah i guess it is i mean of course the problem with the grimoire is so many of the magic words the nomina barbara or names of angels or when he suddenly starts talking in Persian or God knows what, some sort of weird Turkic uh, that I couldn't even recognize if it slapped me in the face. It's a mess and I can't read it. I don't think the scribes who I'm relying on could read it. Because one thing I found is whenever I don't know what's going on, I compare my various manuscripts and all the scribes are disagreeing with one another and crossing words out and writing them in the margins. So they didn't know what was going on either, probably. And if they did, they might not. They might not be completely upfront about it. My research fellow, Luca Petruzzi, thinks that a lot of these spells were probably just meant to be studied 
together with a master and he would explain to you the proper way to read the words out loud. Now, my strategy in dealing with this as a translator is to take seriously the common Arabic saying that poetry is sorcery or sihr and ask myself, how do I translate a magic spell as if it was a poem? Because everyone knows that poetry is untranslatable. Magic spells are untranslatable. It's a question of where you put your effort and your, and your emphasis. And so, you know, I, I think I should create, I should try to create something, if not coherent, then at least beautiful and moving, if possible. So yeah, that's uh, that might just be sort of a coping strategy, but I, that is one way that I'm trying to to bring together the, the theories of language and the miftah with the theory of magic is in, is in my actual approach as a translator. That is so cool. Thank you. <laughs> Let's see if it actually works. Yeah, we just have to see how it works. I mean, that the proof's in the pudding, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. Be careful that you don't accidentally summon the wrong jinn late at night while you're busy translating you know what i mean you're joking but i'm scared that I, I do feel like i'm playing with fire because i mean especially with the gin i guess you're kind of playing with fire aren't you because just the book's scary like it's a little scary and it keeps saying you know only the right people should mess with this stuff and i do not qualify as <laughs> the right the right people by, by his standards i don't i don't think i don't think you know hmm. um so yeah well, what you got to do then is either, I guess, just be a total skeptic that doesn't believe any of it, then mm -hmm. you're immune, or become a good Muslim. I think those are your only two <laughs> safe options, right? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't do I don't think I'm going to have to just vacillate between those two points rapidly somehow. Okay. Well, maybe that makes you more universal. Maybe that makes you yeah. the... the the Nisa al Camila, because you're, you're yeah, like, exactly right. um, it's like embodying these contradictions within yeah. yourself. And I thus, need to embody the opposites. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I think that's actually a beautiful spot to stop this interview. You've whetted our appetites massively for Sakaki, and I know people are going to very much look forward to the return to this subject a few years from now when you've, um, when you probably you have an edition out, in fact. Yeah, there's so much to say about this book. There's just so much in it. Yeah. So I hope that I can talk to you again about it later. I think just, just the comments and the speculations on language and the nature of language and its relationship yes. to magic alone is worth the price of entry. So thanks again. Nice one. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Stay esoteric. <laughs> yes, always do.